Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, good to see everybody here. You know, so many, uh, so many things going through my mind. Bug your treasure. Thank you for, for what you do for our community and uh, for Central Kentucky. And uh, mentioned baseball. You, guys, I'm not a baseball fan or anything. I'm not a big sports guy at all, but some of you are really frustrated, aren't you? Major League lockout. Um, you know, uh, I share that because I, um, I've heard that, not that I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, but I was uh, kind of ties into our story this morning as we're going to get started. Uh, Wayne Williams uh, grew up a Chicago Cubs fan, talking about frustrated for many, many years. Uh, he was a fan, and it was his father's team, and also meant that uh, uh, it was his team. You know, he took on his dad's, uh, his dad's favorite team, but he was always frustrated because at the time, the Cubs had the longest World Series drought in the major leagues. But even so, at the start of every season, they would promise each other that when, not if, but when the Cubs went to the World Series, they would listen to the games together. Well, you probably know, if you follow, in 2016, that season, the Chicago finally made it uh, to, the, uh, to the World Series. And uh, Wayne resolved that he was going to keep a promise that he kept to his father, even though it would be a very expensive uh, promise. He lived now in North Carolina. His father was in Indiana. And it would be easy for him to kind of dismiss his uh, sentimental foolishness, you know, while he went as a kid and everything. But Wayne believes that a promise made is a promise cap. And so he traveled to Indiana to share the last game of the World Series with his father. But there was another major hitch, and that was what Wayne's father had died in 1980. So Wayne went to Indiana to his gravesite, put a lawn chair next to his father's grave, and watched the game on his iPhone for the next four hours, the final game of the World Series. And by the way, if you follow, you know the Cubs actually won in 2016, and so it was a celebration. You know, I love to hear stories like that of people who make commitments and then who actually follow through on those commitments. Promises that, that turn out to be difficult to keep, and yet people are so committed that they just, they're going to do it anyway, especially when that promise is more serious than something like baseball, but when that decision, that promise is made in the form of what we call a vow and not just made offhandedly. In a world where promises are made and quickly broken, where contracts are renegotiated and com uh, commitments are oftentimes forgotten, the whole idea of a vow is a really unusual thing. It's really unusual, but it's been around a long, long time. In fact, the idea of a vow begins in the Bible. That's where we get it. Even uh, when we hear about vows today, uh, it, it, they originate in the Bible because vows were made both to God and before God as witness. And by the way, when you make a vow to God or before God, you ought to do your best to keep it. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. The key statement there, it is better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. You know, we don't talk a lot about vows today. In fact, that word is very seldom used in most of our language, our conversation. 
But the reality is that most of us, most, have made two vows in our lifetime. And maybe you never even think about the first one. The first vow and the most important one is that we make when we give our lives to Christ. We don't use that terminology, but it really is a vow because this is a vow that's made to God in that we are entering a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. It is a promise, a commitment that we are making every bit in the, in the level of a vow. And we're saying that we're going to be a servant, we're going to be obedient, we're going to serve God, give Him our lives, and, and we're going to be faithful to Him through no matter what. You know, vows were made to God in the Old Testament, and God interacted with the people through what was called covenants. And so the idea of a covenant and a vow are very closely tied together. The covenant is a relationship versus a contract type thing. But the vow was what bound them together. And now the Bible says that we are in a new covenant with Jesus Christ, and that we have come into that relationship with a vow. And when we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, we vow our commitment and our allegiance to Him. So a vow is still very much a part of our lives if you are a believer. Now, the second vow that most people make is their wedding vows, which also involves entering a covenant relationship with our spouse before God as our witness. And in fact, most weddings have this phrase in them, as God is my witness, I give you my promise. Now, I want to take a break here uh, just real quick and say, I'm a traditionalist in a lot of ways, and I've done several weddings, and it always bothers me a little bit when vows that people write on their own don't have a lot of teeth in them. You know, they're just kind of like, they make me feel good and they make people laugh. And I'm not real sure those are the best kind of vows. So if you're thinking about taking a vow, I would encourage you to maybe think about one that's pretty serious, not something that's funny. And um, you don't have to be traditional in every way, but, but a vow is a pretty important part of that. All right, so let's throw that in for free. But, um, but here's the thing, when you make a vow, your wedding vows, these are statements or vows that are made in the presence of God as a witness and they're very serious. And I also include in the services I do this phrase that marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but soberly, deliberately, and in reverent fear before God. I like to throw that in. Why? Because marriage is not a frivolous thing. It is a vow made before God as witness. In fact, we say that. And also human witnesses as well. Now, while we're talking about vows, wedding vows, wedding vows vary, but the most common one goes something like this. I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. As God is my witness, I give you my promise. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in that, but breaking it down, let me just kind of share a couple things. That vows have a start date. From this day forward, you're saying, you know, what happened in the past is in the past, but from this day forward, things are going to be different. The vow is going to begin today. It has an end date. When we're parted by death, when one of us dies, that's when the vow is going to be broken. To have and to hold, we give ourselves to each other. We're making a commitment to the other person. I belong to you. You belong to me. And there are no conditions. Do you see there's not an if or a when Did you notice that? There's no if or wins in vows, and so there really aren't any conditions. And in fact, there are some things that are kind of binding, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sickness, and health. 
That covers most of the things I can think of that could happen in a lifetime, doesn't it? So a vow is a pretty serious thing. I like the old traditional ones. They cover all the bases pretty well. And then there is a phrase in there, actually, that you might not have even noticed, but really is what you're saying to that person. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things around it, but here's the real vow. What do we promise to do? We're going to love and to cherish. We're going to love and cherish. So I vow to love and to cherish you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have seen a lot of books that have been written about love, a ton of books, all sorts of books describing what love is, how to keep love, how to show love, everything else. But the main authority on love is the Bible. It's the main book. It really tells you everything you need to know about love. So there's another element I use in weddings in the scripture from 1 Corinthians 13 that says this, and it's very familiar, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So if we're committed to our wedding vows, we usually focus on this idea of loving our spouse. The idea of serving, sacrificing, caring, persevering. We have Jesus as the example of how to show love and everything. So we know a lot about love, but what do we know about cherishing? Have you ever read a book? Have you ever um, heard a sermon on cherishing or even an article about how to cherish your spouse? Me either. Never even thought about it, to be honest. Never on my radar until a friend gave me a book to read called Cherish by a guy named Gary Thomas. And as I read that book, it struck a chord with me that I want to share with you over the next couple of weeks in this series called Cherish. Now, here's the thing. I know that there are many of you here who are not currently married. I understand that. And that's what always concerns me a little bit when I talk about marriage in the same way when I talk about parenting, because a lot of us don't have kids that we're currently parenting, right? So what I'm going to ask you to do is if you are not married, will you please not check out? Please don't check out because even though you may not be currently married, you may think you'll never get married, but you may get married again. I mean, it could happen. I know people who have found love later in life in the 70s, even 80s. Praise the Lord, it could happen, you know? So don't rule it out, all right? Please don't rule it out. Here's the other thing. Don't check out because what we're going to talk about is relevant to every facet of life. It's not just your spouse that you should cherish. You should cherish your children. You should cherish your parent. You should cherish your friends, your fellow Christians. We should cherish everyone. Maybe in a more special way, we're married, but you know what? It's relevant to all other relationships. These principles are timeless and they're valuable no matter where you are in life. And here's the other odd thing, was that the friend who gave me this book is single and recently went through a difficult divorce. He didn't give me an explanation when he gave me the book, but he felt this book would speak, was speaking to him and he wanted me to read it. I think that says something. Perhaps it was a part of his own healing process when he read through this. And so that's what I'm trying to say. Please don't say, I'm not coming the next two weeks or walk out and leave right now, please don't do that because I think this will speak to you no matter where you are. If you're a young person, somewhere down the road, you're gonna need this. If you are not married right now, it's gonna, it's gonna reverberate somewhere in your life. 
Now, cherish. Since it's a word that we don't use a lot, I never use it except when I do a service, right? It's not a word that we use a lot. What in the world does cherish mean? Well, the word cherish means to protect someone, to honor them, to hold them dear, to treat them with tenderness and respects. And by the way, those are all things that we all want, right? Can you think of anything on that list that you don't want to experience or that you would think you would like to show to someone you care about? And also, guys, I'm going to give you a break because usually in sermons like this, you're going to feel like I'm talking to you. The guys, you need to cherish your wife, cherish your wife, right? And I am. That is true. It's exactly what I'm saying. But also, in some cases, women, you might need to hear this as badly as men. And I'm going to talk to you as well. I'm going to talk to all of us. It's not limited to just as a man thing to cherish his wife. Both husbands and wives need to cherish one another. And while we're talking, before you start becoming critical of your spouse and some of the things we talk about, I want you to ask yourself the question, am I cherishing my spouse? Because what I've discovered is that most marriages consist of couples who treat each other just about the same way. Maybe you don't intend to, but you kind of get to the place where you treat the other person about the same way that they treat you. So... Let's not be judgmental of our spouse if we don't feel like they're cherishing us because maybe they don't feel so cherished either, all right? But we're going to look at what it means to cherish your spouse. But before we do that, though, I want to look at the difference between loving and cherishing. I, I, I think there's a little bit of difference here. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to compare the famous Bible scripture about love, 1 Corinthians 13, that I read a few moments ago with the book of cherishing in the Bible called the Song of Solomon. And you get a little embarrassed when you read that book, right? But that is a book that is devoted to cherishing. So you read one, then look at the other, and you'll see how they're a little bit different. So look at some, some comparisons real quick. First of all, love is about being gracious and considerate. I mean, listen to what it said, just one verse, love is patient and kind. So love's about being generous and considerate, gracious and considerate. Cherish is about being enthusiastic and enthralled with the other person. You just don't feel warmly toward them. You are feeling very warm. You're, you see them as hot, right? All right. Listen to what it says in Song of Solomon. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? And that's some pretty slick words right there. We'd all love to be able to talk like that, but it's kind of bragging on their spouse. Secondly, love tends to be quiet and understated. Love does not envy or boast. It's kind of, kind of quiet, underlying love. Cherish, on the other hand, uh, boasts boldly and loudly. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. That's what she's saying about him. So she's boasting about her love, not just being quiet and understated. Thirdly, love thinks about other people with selflessness. It's very selfless. Love is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Cherish, on the other hand, thinks about its beloved with praise. Praising. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Song of Solomon 2, 14. Fourthly, love doesn't want the worst for someone. You know, you don't wish bad on them. Love, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, does not rejoice at, wrong, at wrongdoing. Cherish, on the other hand, celebrates the best in someone. It celebrates that person. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Beautiful, behold, you are beautiful in Song of Solomon. And then number five, love puts up with a lot. 
Love kind of endures. That's what it says. Love hopes all things, endures all things. But cherish enjoys a lot. Cherish enjoys not just putting up and tolerating. Song of Solomon, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. So, so you see that, that love and cherish are not the same, but they complement each other very well. Because without the bedrock of love, cherishing won't last. Without love, cherishing is infatuation. And if you were to just go down through there and look at cherishing, you would say that, that they're just infatuated with somebody. And that could pass away. But love is deeper than that. Love is meaningful. Love is a bedrock that you kind of build your life upon. And so they work together. Without love, cherishing will be a sentimental idea that somehow gets lost in the reality of the world. Without cherishing, love might feel like a duty. Yeah, I love you. Told you I loved you when I married you. If it changes, I'll let you know, all right? That's not, that's not cherishing at all. And, and I don't want my wife to think that I, I'm with her because God said I couldn't go. I couldn't leave. I don't want that. I want her to know that I love sharing life with her. That's a delight to me. And I'm learning through this as well, you know. I asked my wife the other day, I said, do you, do you feel cherished? And I don't know if she was feeling just nice or gracious, but she said, yes, I do. I feel cherished. I want to do that better. I want to do that better. That might be a good question to ask each other uh, as we move through this, through this at some point. Men, our wives want more than to be simply loved. They want more than to just be loved. They want to hear something like this. You have captivated my heart, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Don't you wish you could say things like that? I mean, that's so smooth. And wives, your husband want more than to be tolerated. You ever feel tolerated, guys? Just like put up with you, you know? They want to hear something like this. Women, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. And you say, well, he's not even young anymore, you know? <laughs> and you don't have to use that same language, but something like that would be kind of nice to hear, wouldn't it? Be kind of nice to hear that, guys. You know, you're like a big tree in the, in the forest, you know? We know we're supposed to love our spouse. We're commanded to do that, but we don't want to love them out of, uh, love out of obligation. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be loved out of obligation. So let me ask you this. Do you love your spouse? You don't have to answer. Hope you do. Hopefully, yes. But here's a better, another question. Do you like your spouse? It's not the same thing. I read a, um, a survey the other day about a guy who had a group of men, a minister in a church setting, and he asked these guys, how many of you know that your wife loves you? And they all held their hand up. And he said, okay, how many of you know that your wife likes you? And none of them held their hand up. It's one thing to be loved. It's another thing to be liked, right? That's important. Cherishing is liking your spouse as well as loving them. And both love and cherish are choices that we make, by the way. We choose to love. We can choose to cherish. You are the only person in the world that can make your spouse feel cherished in this way. You're the only one that can do that. Other people can love them. They can respect them. They can appreciate them. They can praise him or her. But if you don't cherish your husband or wife uh, as you should, your spouse will never be cherished. They will never feel cherished. You have that power. And I believe that God wants to raise the level of Christian marriage so that we're not just gritting our teeth and hanging in there because we said we were, but instead we're learning how to love and cherish and honor and celebrate each other. 
And the good news is, is that cherishing your spouse is something you can learn to do. And you say, well, you don't know how bad things are, how they are. You know what? I don't. Obviously, only God does. But the good news is that God can help you. He is more than capable of teaching us and empowering us to cherish our spouse the way he cherishes us. God can do that. We were laughing earlier in there because we were going through the service order and everything. And we said, okay, the sermon is about cherishing your spouse and everything. And the last song is Graves to Gardens. Everybody got to laugh because it's like, you know, you may feel like you're in the grave with your marriage and you'd like to be in the garden. Well, God can do that. God can do that. And I want to give you some encouragement about that today. Cherishing is an attitude. It's an outlook. It's not beyond our ability and it's not something that's going to happen without some intentionality. It's not based on feelings that can be developed. So committing to the promise to cherish that you made, more than likely, uh, adopting a cherishing mindset and then Putting into practice cherishing actions create a cherishing heart. And these are all things that can be chosen. You know, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, women are note takers. And some of you are taking notes. Guys, we don't take notes. I don't see a single man in this room taking a note. But you ought to. So here's what I'm going to do. At the end of this, I'm going to give you a list of these guys. (laughs) Because you're not going to write them down. But you really ought to remember them, you know. And women, you'll already have your list. But I think it might be good to have these 10 things that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks because it is something that we can intentionally do and choose to do. We're going to be talking about the right mindset. We're going to be talking about the right actions. And here's the great thing about cherishing. The more that you intentionally and deliberately choose actions that cherish your spouse, the more you will experience positive emotions and feelings toward them. If you act the way that you wish you felt about your spouse, soon you will feel the way you act. It's so much easier to change your feelings by changing your actions because you, de- you always determine your actions. You don't always determine your feelings, but your feelings will change based on your actions. And then nine times out of 10, there's no guarantee, there's always this outlier, nine times out of 10, your spouse will begin to change the way they act and the way that they feel toward you as well. And I think this is important because I really think this is how couples can choose to renew their marriage and create a marriage that's much more pleasing and enjoyable in life. It's also a great example to your children. Don't you want your kids to have a great marriage? If so, you have to model that in front of them. And it's also a strong testimony to the power of Jesus in your life because it may take Jesus to cherish your spouse, you know? Maybe you can only do it through his help. Maybe it's the only way, but it's your choice. In his book, Gary Thomas tells a story of a man who had been married twice, and both of his wives had died of illness. He said his first marriage had been uh, uh, been rather traditional, you know, just kind of my, I told her I loved her, that's kind of how it was. He loved her, he was committed, and he never, ever mistreated her. But whenever he was remarried, he decided that he was going to treat his second wife like a princess. In fact, he even called her, he called her princess. And then she became ill and passed away. He, he, he told Gary that his second marriage was more fulfilling, more intimate, and happier than his first. But it wasn't because his second wife was better than the first wife. He said, in fact, in terms of spiritual maturity, relational availability, and, and just demeanor, they were, according to him, about the same. But he said the difference was that he loved his first wife, but he sought to love and cherish his second wife. It makes a difference in our marriages. 
A lot of people think the best way to be happier in marriage, improve marriage, is to change their spouse. But this guy field tested a different theory, and he found it to be effective. So instead of changing your spouse, trading your spouse, instead of doing that, I want to encourage you to change your attitude. Be a lot cheaper that way, I'll tell you. Be a lot cheaper. Raise the bar. Don't choose, choose to love your spouse. Learn how to cherish them, and you'll enjoy your marriage like probably like you've never, ever done before. So that's a challenge to you. You know, I think it's also interesting here and more than coincidental that the comparison we find in the Bible, and you know this, for the relationship between Jesus and, his, and us is that of a bride and groom. Isn't that more than coincidental, right? God planned that intentionally. God chose us. He selected us. He courted us. And he paid the price for us to be in a relationship with him. He loves us, but he also cherishes us. He finds joy in us. He celebrates us. Remember that to cherish someone means to protect them and to honor them and hold them dear and treat them with tenderness and respect. And we get all of that from Jesus, do we not? That's how he loves us. That's how he shows his love for us. All those things, the setting the example for our marriage and also promising that because we're part of his bride, the church, that one day we're going to be with him forever and eternity. And that's an incredible promise for us to look forward to. You know, I want to challenge you, wherever you may be in life, to think about this idea of cherish. You may want to look up something. You may want to buy that book. We're going to look at the book, stay pretty close to the book, to be honest with you, in this study, because I think there's just some incredible things. And I've heard tons of sermons on love, preached tons of sermons on, on love and marriage and been to seminars and everything else. But there's some things we're going to talk about I never thought about, never heard before, uh, there are things I want to practice in, in our marriage or things I want to encourage you to think about and be challenged by. And if you're not married again, I want you to think about how to translate this into how you treat people because it makes a difference. It makes a difference. The same way that we love the people closest to us, we want people around us to feel loved, to feel like that we care about, that we celebrate them. So it doesn't matter where you are. You can use this in any facet of life or work or career, and it's going to make a difference to treat people the way Jesus would treat them because he does truly cherish us. You know, I want to move to a time of response this morning, and uh, I don't know about you, but I know that God speaks to us through his word. I, I see that God is speaking and moving in our church in, in incredible ways, and I, I think that I expect to see marriages that will be improved through prayer, through some focus, through learning to cherish one another. And I believe that God is moving in our church in the area of prayer, and I really want to support that. I want to encourage that. I want to encourage you to pray for one another. And we more and more increasingly opening up the front just to encourage people and invite people to come up and pray, because I know that there are people here today who are hurting uh, maybe it might be because of health. It might be because of marriage. Maybe your marriage isn't going well, and you, you want to come up and pray with somebody about that, or you want to pray for somebody else. And guys, here's the thing. As we move more toward this, I just want you to know that if you come forward, it doesn't mean that, you're, that your life is broken any more than anybody else. It, maybe it means you're a little more honest than a lot of us. So I want you to feel like that this is an open place because we're family, and family needs to be honest with each other. 
And, um, and if you come forward, then, then there will be other people that will be praying for you as well. So, so lift up those who come. Uh, a couple of things we're doing. One thing is um, our elders, we want to be a little more available to you in prayer. You know, the Bible says if anyone is sick, let him call the elders. Uh, come and pray with them. The prayer of faith will, will, uh, will lift that person up. We want to do that. So we want to be available if you uh, want, to, want the elders to come and pray about anything spend time with you. We'd love to come and do that. Just let us know. You can let me know, any of our elders. And the other thing is just an open stage or open front for you to come and to pray. And we're going we're gonna to be addressing that a little bit more in the next couple of weeks. But, but uh, we're going to also, I'll be available. I'm going to ask Zach, if he would, to step up. Ahumera uh, is going to be coming here in just a few moments to be available to pray with you. Ladies, if you feel more comfortable praying with, with the woman, uh, we just want this to be a place uh, where we seek God and we come before his throne. So um, let's pray together. Father, we come this morning, and Lord, uh, we are humbled because we see your power and your majesty. And God, we see that you are a God who cherishes us. Father, you don't just love us and tolerate us, but you like us. And you call us to yourself. And Lord, you care about us. You want to protect us. You want to encourage us. You want to bless us. You want to surround us. Father, all those things fall in the line of cherish. So Lord, I pray that as we come just now and we think about and sing about your power to change things, that God, you would maybe take the hopelessness that we live in sometime, the hopelessness about our marriage or relationships or family or health or life, Lord, whatever it may be, that you would challenge us God, you would help us to see that you make all things new. And that begins with the relationship with Jesus. So Lord, whatever needs to be said, whatever is on each heart this morning, we pray that we would pour those out to you in worship, in submission, in commitment. Lord, may you be honored by our prayers, by our words, by everything this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand together.